centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitrium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to haul our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near a town of La Sea. Much time had been lost and sailing was already becoming dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and also our own lives. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northeast. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, and so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground along the sandbars of Certus, they lowered the, the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should, not, you should have taken my advice and not to sail from Crete then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, 
only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. <clears throat> Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took some soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move and the stern was broken into pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land in safety. Thank you, Denise, for reading God's Word for us. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of a TV program called Storm Chasers before. Anyone? Yeah. I love it. Absolutely love it. Well, it's normally set in America, and the idea is that there's a group of people, and they go chasing after the most 
extreme weather. They've got the equipment to track where the most extreme weather's going to take place. And they go to that like a group of crazy, naughty Americans, and they go and film the extreme weather. Sometimes it's a lightning storm. Sometimes it's a volcanic lightning storm. Sometimes it's a tornado. And you can see a massive tornado in the distance coming towards the camera, and you think, just get in your car and drive, honestly. And it gets closer and closer until way after it's safe to do so. And then just at the last minute, the, the person gets away. Every type of extreme weather you can think of, they film. It's incredible. Well, this chapter that we've read this morning from Acts 27 is for all those people here this morning that love the TV program, Storm Chasers. It's for all of us who are obsessed with extreme weather. The chapter is all about a storm that took place on Paul's third missionary journey as he travels home. This is the, the final voyage of the, of the Apostle Paul, and the voyage lasts all of chapter 27 and into chapter 28, which we'll look at next week. Adrian's going to uh, bring God's word, but it lasts all of this chapter and well into chapter 28. And the Apostle Paul, he's traveling in this boat. He's traveling towards Italy to be tried as a prisoner. We read in verse 1 that Paul is there with other prisoners, but there's also soldiers, there's crew, there's people who guarded the cargo, there's other men on board, all different kinds of people. But despite Paul being a prisoner, we read something very interesting in verse 3. The boat arrives in a place called Sidon, and this centurion, a man called Julius, he trusts Paul, and he lets Paul go aboard, go ashore and go and see some of his friends who are going to take care of him. Now, we've looked at this before, but under Roman law, if, a, if a, a prisoner escaped, the guard was responsible for taking that person's prison sentence on themselves. So if a prisoner was guilty of and condemned and sentenced to 10 years in prison, the person who let that person escape would have to fulfill 10 years in prison. Or if the prisoner was sentenced to life in prison, then that's what the guard would have to fulfill themselves. So it really is remarkable that the Apostle Paul is allowed by this man Julius to go off and see his friends. Because if Paul escaped, it would be this own man's life that would be affected. This little snippet of information in verse 3 shows us that the centurion trusted Paul. It probably shows as well that this man probably thought that Paul was innocent of the crimes that he's accused of. So Paul is given some special treatment. He's given some freedom. He's also allowed to travel with some of his friends. In verse 4, it begins, From there we put out to sea. Remember, Luke is the person who's writing the book of Acts. Now, you don't need to know much about ancient Rome and the prisoners to know that they didn't normally get travel companions to travel with them. So Paul's a special case. He's a prisoner, yes, but he's getting some special treatment. He's got a pretty lush deal. He's got a cushy number, as the British would say. And as they travel on this boat towards Italy, they encounter more and more difficulty. By verse 6, Paul is on a boat carrying 276 people. This isn't a tiny yacht sailing across the Mediterranean. This is a big boat. If you were there many years ago on South Shields when the tall ships came in, that's the kind of vessel we're talking about, a big boat, one big enough to, to carry nearly 300 people as well as cargo. It's a big, big ship. By verse 7, this 
large vessel is making very slow headway. The winds become so strong that they have difficulty holding their course. And they move along the coast until they come to this port called Fair Havens. We read of that port in verse 8. And they decide to dock there temporarily. And that name, Fair Havens, it's safe in name, but not in reality. It's not a place that they can dock the boat over winter. It's not a suitable stopping place. It's an open bay. It offers no protection against the winter winds. It's completely useless. It's a stopping point. It doesn't protect the ship. In our voyage of life as Christians, as I prepared this, I was thinking, not everywhere that is called a fair haven is a safe haven for Christians. What do I mean by that? Sometimes the relationships, the friendships that we have might make us feel good, but they aren't safe for us. They aren't good for us. Sometimes people try to influence us in the wrong way. They might try to tempt us or drag us into sin, get us even to try and compromise or witness or doubt our salvation or doubt who God is. Some people can do that. But some places as well can have the name of a fair haven, but they're not safe. Take a church, for example. On the outset, it's good to attend a church. But not all churches are necessarily safe places for you this morning if you're a believer. You have to discern. Are they teaching the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they believe in the sovereignty of God? Do they believe in justification by faith alone? Do they teach a six-day creation? You have to make that judgment. Basically, do they teach the whole Scriptures fully and unashamedly? Because if they don't, even though church might seem like a safe place, the churches that don't preach a full canon of Scripture are not safe havens for you this morning if you're a Christian. Even our own homes might seem like a safe haven, but we have to be on guard against laziness, against gluttony, against lack of self-control, against covetousness. Sometimes the places where we feel the most comfortable can actually be the most dangerous for us because that's where we let down our, God, our guard and forget to ask God for the help and strength that we so desperately need. If we examine the things we think are fair havens, and are convicted that they are not going to help us and strengthen us in our walk with God, then we're better off without them. And just as this harbor is called Fair Havens in verse 8, and it was unsuitable for a ship to stay in winter, so we aren't to settle for unsuitable things in our lives, or we will be harmed. The Apostle Paul would write himself in, in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13, Be on guard and stand firm in the faith. We have to be always on our guard as believers, lest we fall into sin. And often we have to be most on guard in the places where we think we're safe. By verse 9 of this story, the boat is docked in this area. It says that much time is lost. And the sailing has become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. Why is that detail there? The Day of Atonement was between the, well, it could have been between the 25th of September and the 5th of October. So the point that Luke is making is that it's almost winter. It's getting dangerous for a time of sailing. Historians tell us that those sailing the Mediterranean Sea 
As a non-sailor, I would think the quickest way between two places is a straight line. You'd sail from there to there. But no, the sailors would have hugged the coastline to try and protect themselves. So if extreme weather came in, they, came, they could dock really, really quickly against any of those places. They wouldn't be in the open sea. And Paul advises the men in verse 10 that the voyage will end in disaster. Remember the Apostle Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 25 is a man that's been shipwrecked three times and floated on the open sea for a day and a half. This guy knows what he's talking about. He's an experienced sailor. It would have been a good idea for the master of the sea or the master of the ship to listen to him. He's an experienced guy. But the master of the boat doesn't listen. He, he takes a straw pole and gets the majority opinion. He ignores what Paul says and sets sails regar sail regardless. He tries to go on a day's journey to a more suitable port called Phoenix in Crete. And he's probably got the intention of docking there, leaving the ship there over winter, and renewing the voyage in the spring. We read that in verse 13 onwards. I don't know if you've ever spent much time on a ship before. I don't know if there's any sailors amongst us. I spent three and a half months on a ship on one of the OM ships, the Doulos, many years ago. And I don't think I'll ever forget my first night at sea. <laughs> I was lying in a, a little cabin. It was probably no bigger than anyone's bedroom. There were ten of us in separate beds. And the first night at sea was horrendous. It was awful. There's 350 of us on this boat. The boat was built three years after the Titanic, so it was nearly 100 years old. The boat was so unsafe that it, you weren't allowed to, there were certain ports where the boat wasn't allowed to dock because they couldn't get insurance. We were in one of the most extreme places for weather. And we just left the coast of Western Australia and we were traveling up to East Timor. The first night at sea, it was a humongous storm. It was so bad, the storm, that I could hear the propeller coming out of the water at night. There was a 17-degree pitch, so it wasn't just going forward and back. There was a 13-degree roll, so we're going every way you can possibly imagine. So I can only imagine what it was like in this storm, in a wooden boat, in a type of hurricane, blowing them every direction. The wind blowing from northeast to southeast. A storm so bad that we read in verse 15, they end up allowing the ship to go wherever it wants. They give up trying to steer it. By verse 16, they aren't able to make the lifeboat secure, the little boat that travels behind the main ship, so they end up hoisting it aboard. In the end, they pass ropes underneath the ship to try and secure the planks together to stop the ship from breaking up. They then throw all the ship's tackle overboard and all the cargo and all the while, the storm's raging. There's no sun. There's no stars. And the men give up all hope of being saved. Can you blame them? I can't. Their ship's probably taking on water. They're in a boat held together by ropes. Is it any wonder that these men give up hope of being saved? These men have tried all they could. And now they gave up hope. There's nothing left for them to do. There's nothing left them to try. That leads me on to our second point this morning. How can we respond 
to storms in our lives. Friends, there are times when we go through the storms of life. Times like these men when we feel like giving up and giving in. Job 9.26 likens our life in this world to a voyage across a vast sea. I'm paraphrasing here, but it says that people in their lives skim along the sea like a boat, like a paper boat, boat of papyrus, it says. We sail across life like a paper boat on the sea. There are times when we go through rough patches, yes, but there are times when we should call those rough patches storms because that's what they are. Our paper boats are battered, they're tossed, they're beaten, turned every which way, and it often seems like we can do nothing about it. Maybe as you think about your own life, what you're facing at present, or even what you faced in the past, you know the storms are real. Maybe after all this time grieving for a loved one, you still have that deep sense of loss that you had in the very first day that you spent without them. Maybe you're recovering from addiction, and every day is a battle just to fight and stay away from temptation. Or that health issue has caught you off guard, and it's in your thoughts constantly. Job again in Job 5 verse 7 says, Yet man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upwards. It's a certainty that we all here this morning are going to face trouble. But it's not the same type of trouble that the world faces. It's a unique kind of trouble as Christians. There's unique temptations, unique storms that we face as Christians. Unique trouble unique temptations. The Apostle Paul in his walk understood in this life that he wasn't going to a playground. He was going to a battleground. There was an enemy trying to stop him going to Rome. And these are unique storms that we face as Christians. Maybe it seems this morning like you're the one in the boat with the Apostle Paul. And you're being tossed about with these hurricane force winds. And they're so strong that you've given up trying to find any direction. Maybe it seems like you fell in the water a long time ago. And just day by day you're trying to keep your head above water. Just trying to live each day as it comes. You've resigned yourself to whatever happens will happen. Well, take heart. Take heart firstly in the fact that the boat you're on does not belong to you. It belongs to God. If you're a Christian here this morning, going through trial and difficulty, take heart. Because although you're in a storm, the boat of your life belongs to God. He is the one that owns your life. He's responsible for keeping you, and He's the one that's going to guide you. If you go down to South Shields again, you'll think I've got a love for South Shields, I don't. But if you go down to South Shields and see some of the boats that are docked, you'll see the size of the ropes that those boats are held uh, along the, the dock with. These ropes are massive. And just as these ropes ratcheted the ship together and prevented it from breaking up, so God in His love and mercy ratches, ratchets us together in His love. He keeps us with these massive, unbreakable, unstretchable ropes that hold you. He holds our lives and He holds our salvation. Sometimes when I've gone through storms before of doubt or worry or watching a loved one go through a difficult time, I've made the mistake of not focusing enough on the God that keeps my salvation. 
He's the one that binds our salvation, never to let go. And what was the Apostle Paul's reaction to the storm? We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at verse 23. So if you've got a Bible with you, that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time on. What was Apostle Paul's reaction? Remember we'd said that those in the boat had resigned themselves to whatever happened. These men had given up. And we can do that so easily. What was Paul's reaction in verse 23? Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Paul in this statement sums up how we this morning can face the storm. Paul starts off, an angel of the God. The God. He declares that this isn't one of the mere images that the sailors would have worshipped or some idol made by human hands. He doesn't say, I believe in a God. He says, I believe, I believe in the God, the maker of heaven, the maker of earth, the maker of the seas and all that is in them. He confesses publicly who his faith is in. And then he continues, to whom I belong. He declares that he's a child of the Most High. What a way for Paul to declare God and his faith in God at this time of storm. Remember as Paul speaks, the storm is raging and those that are listening, they're in despair, they're in doom and gloom. They're probably thinking they're never going to see their wives again. They're never going to see the youngsters again. But Paul stands up and says, I am Christ. I am his. I know who God is. I belong to him, the maker of heaven and earth. And Paul goes on, whom I serve. He confesses that he's a servant of God. If God tells Paul to serve him in a certain way, he's going to do it. He's in the service of the master of the sea, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on and delivers this message in verse 24 and 25 and shows that God has a plan for his life and advises the sailors to take courage. What a wonderful example of how we as Christians can face our storm. We can start off like Paul and say, the God the true God. We remind ourselves of who God is. This isn't some sort of abstract force of nature. This isn't someone who might or might not exist. This is the true God. Remind yourself in the current storm that you're facing of the power that he holds, his majesty, his holiness, righteousness, the fact he's all present, all knowing. This is the God that holds us in the storm. The one who has the power to stop what we're facing instantly but sometimes doesn't because he knows what's best for us. To whom we belong, we can continue. Remind yourself that you're a child of the Most High. In Colossians 3, Paul would write, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When despair sets in, remember that you're his. This is the God that spared not his own son. Remember that you're his. No storm or tempest can hinder God's favor to his people, for he's a help always at hand, and to whom we serve. Remember that you this morning have got a purpose. You've got a purpose in God's plan. And God has a purpose in this storm and this fiery trial that you're facing. Ask the question in your storm, what is God trying to teach me? How is he drawing me to himself? 
How is he making me more like myself? Perhaps on reflection, it will only be in reflection that we find those answers. But in all things, God has a purpose and a plan according to his good and perfect will. We can face our trials in the confidence of who God is, that we're his, and that we've got a purpose in his plan. God won't calm all our storms, and that seems hard sometimes. But discipline yourself to remember that he will do much better than calming your storms. He'll enter your storms with you in his timing, and he'll give you the strength to face them. The more trial we go through as God's people, and the more storms and the more suffering, the more we learn to glorify God and be more like Jesus. Peter would write in 1 Peter 1 verse 7 that the trial of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the more trials you face, the more difficulties, the more valuable you are to God. That's not true. You can never add to your value in God. But those fiery trials and temptations make your faith more precious. This storm that you're facing and trials that you will face are all part of God's plan. Paul stands up. He encourages the men there. Keep up courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. He stands up and says, God told me that he's going to keep us safe. Not a hair of your head is going to be harmed. Paul understood that with God, saying and doing aren't two different things. They're one. God declared it, and it happened. He stands up and says, God told me we're going to be safe, so we're going to be safe. And God tells that with us. So let's trust him that he's with us every step of the way. Let's go on to our final point. The Lord establishes our steps. The story continues from verse 27. The ship is dragged across the Adriatic Sea and the sailors sense that they're approaching land. And depending on what translation of the Bible, whether it's in feet or meters, the sailors take a measurement and it's 40 meters, but 120 feet deep. They wait a little bit. They're afraid they're going to be shattered on rocks. They take another measurement and it's 30 meters, 90 feet deep. And because they're afraid of getting the ship being broken up on these rocks, they drop down four anchors and they pray. Boy, do they pray. Unbelieving men pray for daylight. And Paul stops and he encourages these men who haven't eaten in 14 days to eat. He breaks bread. He gives it to them. They eat. They're strengthened. They're encouraged. Their spirits are raised. And when daytime finally comes, they see a sandbar just off the coast of Malta. And they decide to try and run aground the ship there. And that's what happens. They run the ship aground. But we read in verse 42 that the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. They don't want the prisoners to escape. Remember how we started with Julius the centurion, how Julius would have been responsible for Paul escaping and undertaking his punishment. So the same thing here in verse 42. They're afraid that all of the prisoners are going to escape and they'll be responsible. But Julius intervenes. He protects their lives. And he tells them, look, if you can swim, swim. If you cannot, grab a bit of the ship, a bit of driftwood, and float into the shore. And so we read the last sentence 
of our passage this morning. Verse 44, in this way, everyone reached land safely. Of course they did. That's what God said would happen. The 276 souls that got on that ship got off the ship. What a dependable God that works things for his glory. He declared it and it happened. But don't forget that there was an element of human responsibility in all this for the security of the people on board. Remember when Denise was reading in verse 30, the sailors let down a lifeboat and some of the sailors are going to try and leave the ship. But Paul intervenes and said, unless these men abide in the ship, unless these men stay in the ship, they can't be saved. They can't be saved. Even in God's plan, there was a human responsibility for mankind to do what God had said. The men had to stay in the ship in order to be safe. And within God's plan and will, we have a responsibility as well as God's people. As we travel through life, God gives his word as our guide. He tells us how we ought to live, the places we ought to go, the kind of people that we ought to be. He tells us how we can serve one another. He tells us who we ought to marry or whether to stay single. Tells us all these things in his word. Sometimes the reality is, if we're honest with each other, we think we know better. Just like the sailors ignored Paul's advice not to set sail, so we can think that we know better than godly Christians around us who give us advice. Sometimes we ignore that and ignore what God says in his word by suppressing the truth because we know that it convicts us, it shapes us, it changes us. But actually, God has a plan for our lives. Instead of resisting it, the best thing that we can do is surrender to it. Let God steer the ship of your life where he will. Surrender who you are, what you do, and where you go to God. Because he knows the beginning from the end. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict and to change your heart. The Jews had a saying at this time, man makes plans and God laughs. That was their saying. Man makes plans and God laughs. It's based on Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The, sailor on this, the sailors on this boat had plans, but God established their steps. Paul had plans. I'm sure all Paul wanted to do was to reach Rome. But God established his steps. Mankind did it all planned out and worked out. But the Lord is overseeing and determining and establishing their steps. We should realize that too. And surrender our lives to God's plan. And establish our steps. So in conclusion. We've seen that our lives are like a voyage. And sometimes the storms of life. The trials of life, the temptations of life come and try to blow us off course. We've seen how we can stand in the midst of these trials and storms like Paul and say, we believe in God Almighty. We don't just believe in Him. We belong to Him. We serve Him. But sometimes we think, 
how can I do this? How can I respond like Paul did? But maybe you're looking back on a past trial and thinking, I didn't respond like Paul in that. So going forward, how can you do it differently? How can I do it differently the next time? Well, first of all, encourage yourself that although the Apostle Paul was an apostle, he was still a fallen man. He was acting in God's strength. Philippians 4 verse 11, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Here Paul testifies, only in God is he strong. And only in God, only through abiding in him, are we strong enough to withstand the evil one. But secondly, let's learn, I know this is random, but bear with me. Let's learn from the illustration of the two men who had houses with thatched roofs. It sounds like an old Irish proverb, doesn't it? <laughs> there were two men with houses with thatched roofs. It's a bit like the man who built his house in the rock and the house in the sand. But one man spent his summer months thatching his roof, getting it ready, preparing for any storms that the winter may bring. The other man spent his summer relaxing in bed, enjoying a bit of the sunshine, enjoying the weather, sunbathing, just enjoying himself. When winter comes and the storm comes, the first man isn't afraid. He's got his roof thatched. He's safe. He's unscathed. The second man, what does he do when the storm comes? When the storm comes, he has to run outside. He clambers onto the roof. He tries in vain to patch it up. As the wind's howling around him and the rain's pouring into his house, it's a poor time for him to try and repair his roof. He knows he's in danger. Why do I say that? Thatch your roof in summer months. When the season of your life is calm and you're walking with the Lord in joy, don't be content to rest there. Thatch your roof for the trials of life. Read the scriptures. Prepare your heart for battle. Memorize the scriptures. Pray to God that he would strengthen and change you. Don't be like the second man running out in the pouring rain, panicking and trying to grasp for truth while wishing he'd done more in the past to prepare for safety. Now, Paul prepared himself for the storm. He knew the scriptures. He relied in the God of the scriptures. And he prayed fervently. Throughout the book of Acts, we've been on a journey with the Apostle Paul. This is probably the last sermon that I'll preach in the book of Acts. Probably the last for a while, to be honest. Here's hoping. <laughs> but through the book of Acts, we've been on a journey. Paul has been beaten with rods on three separate occasions. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been in prison multiple times with people like Silas. We read in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24, that on five different occasions, he's received 39 lashes with the whip. He's witnessed before courts and Jewish leaders. This morning's passage is the third time he's been shipwrecked. As I said, he spent a day and a half floating in the open ocean. Yet he was able to stand up with godless men around him, stand up despite the storm raging around him, and say, I believe in the one true God. I belong to him, and I'm serving him. That's what Paul was able to do. Paul had thatched his roof in the summer months. I hope you're encouraged, believer, this morning.
to keep going, reaffirming whatever you're facing or whatever you will face, that we believe in the one true God. If you're a Christian, you belong to him. He holds your life in his hands. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You're his. And that we're serving him. And I hope you're encouraged to surrender your life into his hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as your people, whatever we face, you've already gone before. You're the all-knowing God, the one who knows every one of us. We thank you that what you declared in this passage happened. We thank you that you were with these sailors. Lord, exactly what you promised to do took place. We thank you that you promised to be with us every step of the way. Lord, we're your children. We're adopted into your family. Lord, we thank you that we belong to you, that those ropes are ratcheted around us, that our salvation is secure, that our lives are secure in you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to prepare for whatever lies ahead. Lord, that you would help us to thatch our roofs. Lord, to prepare for storms and difficulties, knowing that you're with us, that you're the one true, dependable God, the one whom we serve. In Jesus' name, amen.